6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verse 18, through chapter 19, verse 25. Obviously a prophecy of his resurrection, but there are some scholars that believe it has a double reference, that it also refers to the prerequisite condition of the second coming of Jesus Christ, not the rapture. He comes back twice, once for the church, once for Israel. When he comes back for Israel, it'll be in response to their petition to ask him. And when they do, three days, and he interrupts the attack at Edom and Petra. And Isaiah 63 describes his physical appearance where he's bloodstained, having fought on behalf of his own. And this is what is the reference here in Isaiah 16. We'll deal with it in more detail as we get into more detail in later in Isaiah. Petra or Selah refers to the rocky parts of Moab, and it's both a specific place, but it's also a region. Yeah, verse 4, you see, it's a petition to take care of his outcasts, the remnant. Betray not him that wandereth, verse 3. Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioners at an end, and the spoiler ceases, and the oppressors are consumed out of the land. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and, it shall, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and swiftly executing righteousness. Here's a reference to the tabernacle of David. Pause here and turn to Acts 15. We're all familiar with Acts 15, where Paul and Barnabas are raising the issue, does a Gentile have to be a Jew to become saved? The Jewish leadership, the uh, apostles that were Jewish, that were Christian, took for granted that they were still under the old pattern. If a Gentile wanted to be saved, he should become a Jew and then accept Christ. Paul says, no way. A Gentile can be saved. And there's a big brouhaha. It goes on for 13 years. Until finally they have this uh, brouhaha uh, come to Jerusalem, the, the, the so-called, uh, you know, the council there. It's always presented as if they're, make, they're going to make the final adjudication. I don't think that's really what's going on. If you know Paul at all, had they not agreed with him, he would have gone on and done what he was going to do anyway. But uh, they fortunately agree with him, so that issue goes away. But the point is, their issue here is not just, does a Gentile have to become a Jew? That is the issue here. And of course, after Peter does his uh, thing and Paul does his, then James responds on behalf of the council. James, the Lord's brother, is the leader here. Verse 13, after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God first did visit the nations to take out of them a people for his name. What's he referring to? Right now, the church. See, God first will visit the nations, that is Gentiles, and take a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this, after what? After he calls out a people out of the Gentiles, out of the nations. After this, I will return, Jesus says. And will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again its ruins, and I will set it up, and so on. He goes on. The point is, Acts 15 deals with two issues. Gee, does a Gentile have to be a Jew to be saved? Of course not. And that's what they conclude. That's what the chapter's all about. We're generally familiar with that. What we also miss, though, there was a second issue that was bothering them. 
Because if a Gentile does not have to become a Jew, what's to become of Israel? That's the implied concern that's dealt with here. God did first visit the nations, take out of them a people for his name. After this, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David. God is not through with Israel yet. Israel is a, the major element of his final dealing on the planet Earth. He will deal through Israel. And boy, is the, the, it's, it's tragic to see the doctrinal errors that are heaping up once again. You think after 19 centuries of church confusion, which has caused nothing but tragedy on the planet Earth, that we'd finally learn. And from the 70s and 80s, you saw the church get back to the Bible collectively and get their act together. No, uh-uh. It's happening again. You're finding characters running around the country selling the Dominion theology, the Reconstructionists, the replacement theologians, and they're setting the stage for the next Holocaust, the anti-Semitism that Jesus predicts in Matthew 24, quoting from Daniel 12. Tragic, tragic, tragic. In any case, back to Isaiah 16, verse 5. See, uh, he will sit... Upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David. There's that phrase again. Judging and seeking justice and swiftly executing righteousness. That's Jesus Christ. That's the Messiah sitting where? In the tabernacle of David. He's going to rule the world for a thousand years from the throne of David. Verse 6, we have heard the pride of Moab. He is very proud, even his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Therefore shall Moab wail for Moab, and every one shall wail for the foundations of Kirharish. Shall ye mourn, surely they are stricken, for the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the, the lords of the nation, have broken down the principal plants of it. They are come even to Jazer, they wandered through the wilderness, her branches are stretched out, they are gone over the sea. These are obviously all place names in Moab, He's make, in, in Isaiah's classical style, he's being very, very uh, articulate. Describing this, uh, verse 9, Therefore I will bewail with the weeping of Jesus the, vo- the vine of Sibma. Uh, I will water thee with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliah, for the uh, shouting of thy summer fruits, and for, for thy harvest is fallen. For, and gladness is taken away, and the joy out of the plainful field. And the vineyards there shall be no singing, neither shall there be any shouting. The treaders shall tread out no wine in their presses. I have made their vintage shouting to cease. Wherefore, my heart shall sound like a harp for Moab, and mine inward parts for Kiheres. And it shall come to pass, when it is seen, that Moab is weary on the high place, and he shall come to his sanctuary to pray, but he shall not prevail. This is the word of the Lord, uh, that the word of the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now, the Lord hath spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hireling, and the glory of Moab shall be despised with a great multitude, and the remnant shall be very small and feeble. And this, this here refers to the attack by Sennacherib on Moab. The within three years is the years of a hireling. It sounds like a strange phrase, but he's saying it's like a contract, not a day more nor a day less. See, it's like the years of a hireling. You're required to work whatever it requires, but you wouldn't work a day more. But you'll be held to the three years. It's an expression. In other words, it's like a contract. So it's going to be three, within three years like a contract, in effect, that Moab shall be uh, nailed, and, he, and it was by Sennacherib that was fulfilled. That's chapter uh, 15 and 16 on Moab. Now Isaiah shifts gears. He's going right around the country speaking of their uh, non-Israel countries here. And now we're going to deal with Syria. The idiom is Damascus. That's the capital of Syria. Remember now, Syria was an ally of the northern kingdom that went into slavery. So uh, uh, Syria is an ally of the enemy of Judah. So we have 17, the burden, that is the Masa, the heavy 
burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. Bear in mind, you see, it was an empire at the time, and he's describing its destruction. The cities of Aror are forsaken, they shall be for flocks, and shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. They shall be like the glory of the children of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall become lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathereth the grain, and the reaper uh, reapeth the ears with his arm, and it shall be as when he gathereth ears in the valley of Rephaim. Yet the gleaning grape shall be left in it, and the shaking of the olive tree, two or three berries uh, in the top of the uttermost bough, four or five of its outmost fruitful branches, saith the Lord God of Israel. At that day shall a man look to his Maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. And he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall he respect that which his fingers have made, either the idols or the images. Interesting. Obviously, he's referring to the idol worship of Syria. But notice the uh, parallelism here. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. Boy, could that be aimed at our culture today. Because our, culturally, we totally ignore our maker. We do not have respect for the Holy One of Israel. Years ago, even in this country, uh, it was at least fashionable to be Christian. We're in the post-Christian era. Increasingly, it's going to be an embarrassment and awkward. You're going to look upon, if you, you believe the Bible, you take it seriously, you worship Jesus Christ, you'll look as quaint and weird, and it's going to be tougher. It's not the way it was a, some decades ago. But notice here, it's verse 8, it says, He shall not look to the altars. Okay, we understand that. That's idol worshiping. The work of his hands, neither shall he respect that which his fingers have made. We don't really think of the achievements of man as being an idol, but it is. You know, the space program, you name it. You can just look around the landscape and find things that we extol to take pride in. Now, after Isaiah 14, we've got no perspective on pride. But it's interesting here. Neither shall he respect that which his fingers have made, either the idols or the images. Don't ascribe quaint idols as the only thing that gets between you and God. Anything that gets between you and God is, in effect, an idol. And our own workmanship, our own pride, and our own achievements, uh, the deification of man is our enemy. Perhaps the most insidious false cult of all are not the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Satanists, all these strange groups. The, probably the most insidious cult of all is secular humanism, the official religion of this country. But moving on. Verse 9. In that day shall his strong cities be like a forsaken and uttermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and, they, and there shall be desolation. Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips. In the day that thou shalt make thy plant to grow, and in the morning shalt thou make the seed to flourish. But the harvest shall be a heap in the day of grief and of desperate sorrow. Strange language to us, but articulate to them in terms of predicting the frustrations they're in for. Verse 12, Woe to the multitude of many people who shall make a noise like the noise of seas and the rushing of nations that make rushing like the rushing of mighty, mighty waters. It's interesting how often biblically, not just by Isaiah but elsewhere, the wicked, the nations, the Gentiles are described as rushing waters, the turbulent sea. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Very descriptive. 
and uh, a frequently used idiom throughout the Bible. Verse 13, the nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them and they shall flee far off and they shall be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And behold, at evening at trouble and before morning he is not. This is the portion of those who spoil us and the lot of those who rob us. Okay, I'm just sweeping through Isaiah 17, the judgment against Syria. Pretty straightforward stuff, articulate and yet pretty directed. Now, we can't spend a lot of time on each passage. We'd never get through the 66 books. But we'll sweep through what I'll call the easy ones to take on things like chapter 18. Little seven-verse chapter that's been the subject of a lot of discussion. Most of your study Bibles will attribute chapter 18 as a judgment against Ethiopia. It may be and it might not be. Let's take a look at it and judge for ourselves. Oh, one other thing I forgot to mention. Back here in... Uh, Chapter 17, as I was sweeping through, it, it speaks of the, these trees and so forth being gone, verses 9 through 11. It's interesting that under the Turkish rule that they denuded the land of all its trees. Under the Ottoman Empire, they even had a tax that, that you had to pay if you had trees. So to avoid the tax, you cut down what trees were left. Josephus talks about when Titus, during his siege in 70 A.D., totally denuded the Mount of Olives and all around Jerusalem, uh, both Mount of Olives and Mount Scopus of all the trees. They used it, to, in effect, to set the siege up. And, of course, the reforestation. It started under the British, actually, and, of course, has been intensified under the, in more recent years, has reforested the nation uh, amazingly. So you can get into all of that. But uh, anyway, we'll move on. Isaiah 18 says, Woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And, and that's why most commentators view this as being Ethiopia. Except that's not what it says. Woe to the land shadowing with wings, or fluttering with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. So now, as we go forward here, we're going to notice a number of things that um, cause some commentators to go way out in left field. And I'll share with you what some of their views are. But I'm going to, I want to right up front caution you to be very careful because a lot of people really <laughs> move out in left field on this thing. So is this Ethiopia or not? Not clear yet. Many competent commentators really attribute this chapter to Ethiopia. But I'll give you some of the reasons that it might not be as we go. The land fluttering with wings. Now, incidentally, Ethiopia has a lot of insects, and Ethiopia also has a lot of birds. So some commentators feel that the fluttering with wings points to Ethiopia. I would say it's probably a little inconclusive. But it's a land that is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, verse 2, that's, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water, saying, Go ye swift messengers to a nation scattered and stripped, we'll come back to that, and a people terrible from their beginning to this time, a nation measured out and trampled down, whose land the rivers have traversed or spoiled. Okay, first point is, how does Ethiopia send their ambassadors to Israel? That's a test question. There will be a quiz. Acts chapter 8, do you remember? They had this great revival, and then uh, Phelps comes down to meet an Ethiopian treasurer, right? In his ship, right? No, in his chariot. Remember all that? The famous Ethiopian uh, treasurer. 
And he probably, you always visualize him alone. You always see it. He's probably with a caravan. He was a high, he was a high official, but he was traveling by land. Why? Because Ethiopia was land connected. Could he have traveled by sea? Sure, but he didn't need to. And it's provocative to me that the Holy Spirit makes the point that an Ethiopian traveled by land. This outfit, whoever they are, sends their ambassadors by sea. That implies it's a maritime province beyond Ethiopia. Okay, let's see what that might lead to. Uh, by the way, vessels and bulrushes, uh, the word bulrushes doesn't show up a lot. And uh, the gomech, it, means, uh, uh, it could mean a swallow, drink, absorbent, porous. It means a lot of different things. In what it, it's an ancient term, and it doesn't show up much. So we're not sure what that really means. But anyway, it's in vessels upon the sea. Saying, go ye swift messengers to a nation, and the King James says, scattered and peeled. It's a rather strange translation. The word scattered only occurs here in the entire Bible, in the Hebrew. It's mashak. It seems to mean draw, sow, sound, prolong, develop, tall, continue, defer, extend, or stretch out. It's a root that could mean any of those things. So let's, it's, it's, a, it's a nation that apparently is developed or stretched out. Okay. And it is peeled. Again, it's a strange translation. Marout means obstinate, also means independent, not just peeled. So another, what may be a more comfortable translation is simply that it is a nation that is developed and independent. That would be a valid translation of that, those Hebrew words, whatever that means. To a people terrible from the beginning. In other words, people have never been defeated. To this time, a nation measured out and traversed, whose land the rivers have spoiled or traversed. Now... There are those that because of those phrases, and all those re phrases are going to be repeated in verse 7, sort of poetically. There are those that try to make chapter 18 refer to the United States. Because it is a nation that is uh, shadowing with wings, you know, I don't know, aviation or whatever, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, it's, uh, to the west of Ethiopia. It is not connected by land. Our ambassadors have to go by sea or by air, actually. It is a nation that is uh, stretched out and developed. It is a uh, nation that's never been defeated in battle, in a sense, at least. A nation that does measure... And one of the things, unless you've taken a, a, a course in geopolitics or military science, you probably would, or, or commercial courses in geography, you might not be sensitive to the fact that the United States has got incredibly rare water system. Here in the West, we're not that conscious of it, but if you study the United States as an entity, you know that in the East and the Midwest, there's an incredible waterway system that is one of the major factors that caused uh, the United States to emerge so strong during the 1800s and the Industrial Revolution and the rest of it. So this is, fair, in fairness to some of the commentators, it is a provocative possibility. Normally, I jump on these things. I get a big kick out of them. However, this one, for some reason, while I want to share it with you in candor, it doesn't turn me on for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you grant the premise that this does refer to the United States, you haven't learned anything. We're going to discover that this land is going to be judged. That's no surprise. You know, Billy Graham summarized that so well. If God doesn't judge this country, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. You can look around this country and quickly get the impression that uh, if you know anything, any biblical perspective at all, you know that we're ripe for judgment. 
So uh, granting the premise, is, it's interesting, it's a possibility. Most of the more conservative scholars still view this as referring to, of course, you know, uh, Ethiopia or maybe some province that Israel had traffic with back in those old days. In any case, we're down to verse 3. All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers of the earth see when he lifted up an ensign on the mountains and we bloweth the trumpet here. For so the Lord hath uh, said unto me, I will take my rest and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Small point that you and I, not being agriculturally oriented, may catch here. Having dew in the spring is wonderful. In the harvest, it's bad. In other words, verse 4 is not good, okay? The cloud of dew and the heat of harvest ain't good. It may sound like it, but it's uh, agriculturally, you know, if you're a farmer, that would not be going on. And for before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening on the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They shall be left together unto the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. It's in very agricultural terms, but it's basically talking about judgment. It will not be a good harvest. It will be judged. Be judged. And then verse 7 sort of wraps it up. In, the, in that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts by a people scattered and stripped from a people terrible from the beginning to this time, a nation measured out and trampled underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. So verse 7 is sort of a recap of the introductory phrases in verse 2. Between those, you have a judgment. So a number of people publish books saying, aha, see this is the United States, and they go through all the bending of the text, and there's an old expression in the, the uh, data processing industry, if you torture the data enough, it'll eventually confess, you see. And so uh, some of these things are of that nature. Well, I've been sort of skipping along, as you can tell, because I was anxious to make sure we got to 19. And uh, since we are a little ahead of schedule, I apparently overdid it. There's probably a number of notes that I have failed to share with you. I know you feel very deprived about that, but uh, bear up, right? <laughs> now, uh, chapter 19 is on Egypt. And um, since we're a little ahead of schedule, we'll jump right in. Chapter 19, verse 1. The burden of Egypt, the Masa, the burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Egyptians against Egyptians, and they shall fight, every one against his brother, and every one against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. Now this obviously has had a historical fulfillment. But there are portions of it that sound very contemporary. If you've been following and do any reading of the background of some of the recent wars between Israel and Egypt, uh, this is rather graphic. Egypt will be mentioned seven times in the front end of this. Uh, let's go a little further. Verse 3, The spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst of it, and I will destroy the counsel of it. And they shall seek to the idols, to the charmers, and to the mediums, and to the, I should say, channelers, and uh, to the wizards. And the Egyptians will I give over to the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now, I should mention a little background here. Egypt at the time Isaiah was writing outwardly was in an alliance with Judah. The northern kingdom, the house of Israel, was in alliance with Syria. southern kingdom had a loose outward alliance with Egypt. Isaiah told him not to rely on Egypt as an ally for a lot of reasons, and Egypt falls apart. 
a lot of internal strife. There's internal uh, wars among the various elements. They fall apart. They become a series of independent states. But they are then reunited by a Tsemetikos, uh, a, uh, a very cruel lord who may be the fulfillment of verse 4, that brought them back together and re-welded it into a nation. Now, it's interesting that Egypt's original, way, way back, uh, religion apparently was monotheistic, but of course, in all of this, it becomes very polytheistic. And of course, the ten plagues in um, the book of Exodus speak of the gods that uh, Egypt worshipped. The birds, the beasts, the, uh, the reptiles, the crocodiles, the asp, the insects, the scarabs, and uh, Beelzebub, in fact, means the flies. All of that, of course, is the background for the plagues, the ten plagues of Exodus. But they are anyway regathered under the uh, rulership of a cruel lord. It's interesting, too, though, some scholars feel that verse 4 has also been fulfilled in its subsequent history. Because uh, Egypt, when it was taken over by the Arabs and then the, and then the Turks, the, Tur the Ottoman Empire, was taxed into poverty that it is never recovered from. And the back of that country was broken through the taxation of those centuries of rule under the Ottoman Empire, and uh, it has uh, never rebounded from that. But now I'd like to jump in a little bit in verses 5 through 10. Let's back up a little bit before we do that. Let's recount some more familiar history. If you did any reading in ecology or, or, or uh, current events in the 60s, you may recall that the great project of the decade was the Aswan Dam. Egypt, throughout its history, has been uh, benefited by the Nile. The Nile is its major backbone. It goes through cycles of flooding that, on the one hand, are crucial to their agriculture, on the other hand, a nuisance. And the Aswan Dam was conceived and then executed to put the Nile under, quote, control, close quote. And it took 10 years to build it. And if you read in the 60s, there were frequent articles of all this, this incredible project called the Aswan Dam that the Soviet Union assisted Egypt with. And, of course, it was finished, uh, I think, essentially uh, the 70s. I've forgotten the exact dates. If you read the articles subsequent to 1970 of the results of the Aswan Dam, it's fascinating. And if you want to read one of those articles by going to the library and digging out a, you know, one of the magazines, you can do that. Or you can read Isaiah chapter 19, verses 5 through 11. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.